Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Second Rail Education Podcast. My name is John Heinz. I am here today with a guest who is a dear friend and whose background recently has moved her into the status of being a data science guru at Northwestern University. I am I'm happy to have her on because I've been wanting to have her on for a while, particularly to talk about the impact on data science and data analysis, not just for the higher education context, but for the K-12 education context, something that she's going to claim to know nothing about, but which after I've talked to her a few times, it's clear she knows a whole heck of a lot about because uh, a lot of the same issues she's confronting in her work today is the kind of are, are the issues that uh, K-12 schools and and higher education institutions are facing. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Eva Hare to the podcast. Eva, hello. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing okay here. <laughs> How are things with you? It's good. You've agreed to a wonderful um, Saturday night recording with me from Chicago, and I'm absolutely thrilled because that, to me, means uh, on a, a, I get to do the rare recording on a Sunday morning in Shanghai, and I'm kind of a morning person. Well, I'm glad I could accommodate. <laughs> Thanks. Well, let me start. Let me ask you first a little bit about your background in education. Give me the Twitter feed version of your background in education. You can, you can go longer than a Twitter feed. I'm just kidding. So I grew up in New Mexico mm -hmm. and went all the way through high school there and then did my undergrad degree at Northwestern University, Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering, mm -hmm. and left electrical engineering degree when I graduated and went on to do theater, as one does, um, <laughs> technical theater, sure. backstage theater, uh, and while doing that, got involved actually in healthcare, just as sort of a, a day job doing healthcare administration. While working there, that sort of led me into this into this data side of things. Mm -hmm. Just there was an opportunity. We were a centralized staffing office for a hospital system and started to see reporting opportunities, lots of data was coming through about what sites were using, what kind of staff. So actually my first jump into data was going to take the the Excel sequence, right? So the, you know, where they teach you the book. And I, I found like a Saturday sequence where over the course of three weeks, the first day they go through the intro Excel book. And then the next week they go through the intermediate Excel book and the final week they go through the advanced Excel book. So I got- Wait, this is Excel like Microsoft Excel? Like Microsoft Excel, yeah. Okay. Um, which is actually a surprisingly powerful data tool. Um, mm -hmm. There's, you know, it's a lot more than just spreadsheets. Well, everybody says that if you know Excel, you should never tell colleagues at the office because once word is out that you know Excel pretty well, you will be in high demand. So I've got to think there's something going on there. Right. But it's also there's also a lot, if you have a, a data analysis mindset, there's a lot that you can do with Excel, you know, mm -hmm. again, beyond just sort of day-to-day -day tracking and spreadsheets. Um, there's a lot of functionality mm -hmm. sort of tucked away behind the scenes there. Mm -hmm. So I got into that and then got to a point where I went, you know, Excel isn't has gotten me this far, but it's, it's not right where I want to go. And so that led me to... Uh, do my master's degree at DePaul University here in Chicago, which is what was that? a what was that which I just completed in March. And my degree is a 
master's of science in predictive analytics because I graduated in March, but if I had graduated starting this year, they've changed the degree. So it's now a master's of science in data analysis. Got it. Okay. And tell me a little bit about the degree because I'm incredibly curious. I think I got the big picture of where data analysis is going, but I love the idea of how a university has converted it into like a concrete sequence of classes that you take for a master's degree. So a master's degree is typically what, nine classes and a thesis of some sort or, or an exam of some sort? Is that what this is? And, and what did you study? Yeah. So this is with with some prereqs in there. It's I think it's 13 courses altogether. And then some sort of capstone project, which can either be a thesis, it can be a, a research project or an internship, or it can be a, there's a capstone course where they essentially put you with a group of people and you do some sort of long-term project in a more sort of structured course style environment, which is what I ended okay. up doing because I wasn't doing research and didn't sort of have another project that I was working on. Mm -hmm. So what a data analysis degree really is and what data science really is, it's the combination of two things. It is computer programming and it's statistics. So so sorry to like peel back the curtain and dispel all the, you know, fancy magic illusions, but that's it. It's computer programming and it's statistics and it is the merging of those two things. Um, mm -hmm. In the application, what's more important and what we had many of the courses sort of focus on is the idea of approaching things with a scientific mindset, which is why they call it a data science degree instead of a data analysis degree. So it's using essentially the scientific method where you define a problem, you gather expertise, industry knowledge, you formulate a, a hypothesis about it, you test that hypothesis, and then it's an iterative process. You say, okay, either that hypothesis proved out, in which case that becomes a theory and we try and replicate it and test it and it becomes eventually new knowledge. Or you say, mm -hmm. that hypothesis didn't work, let's go back and figure out why, where can we change things, retest and try and get to a, a solution. So that's the science part of things, is applying that okay. essentially scientific method. So the thing that's new is, I presume, the quantity of data that's out there that both is prompting, that prompted the creation of the master's degree. I mean, to some degree, I'm sure the universities that are creating these programs are doing it because they realize there's demand in the marketplace for these kind of, this kind of work. What's unique about the degree that warranted it being given a new name and a new, <laughs> and a new program as opposed to just having somebody get a degree in a joint master's degree in statistics and data and, and uh, programming? I think what you first mentioned, the, the volume of data available is a big driver in this. You know, there's, there's all sorts of stats you can find online, but we're essentially generating and, and gathering petabytes and ectobytes of, of data, which is orders and orders and orders of magnitude bigger than gigabytes. So they okay. keep having to sort of come up with new 
right? It used to be like a gigabyte of storage. This was a fantastic, nobody had ever heard of this before. And now it's, you can have that in your pocket, right? Two gigs of data mm -hmm. on, on a mm -hmm. jump drive and nobody even uses jump drives anymore, right? So the they keep having to come up with new names for the volume of data that we're just collecting and it's just accumulating. So that's one big piece of it. Another piece sort of related to that is the power of computers. And again, how much storage a computer can run. So many of the data science techniques that nowadays are cutting edge, the actual technique isn't all that new. One of the big new techniques everyone's talking about is called neural networks. Well, mm -hmm. the way that you calculate and you train in neural networks, that algorithm, that technology, it's from like the 70s or 80s. I mean, it's, you know, 30, 40 years old, but it it was abandoned because there wasn't a, there wasn't enough processing power, right? You couldn't build a network that actually could do all the things. So they had the theory and and said, you know, this would be great, but it was just computationally your computer would would literally have to run for years at that time probably in order to spit out a result that now you can get in a matter of hours or minutes i just heard elon musk talking yesterday on a podcast about tesla and about how the, about the neural networks in the cars and how they have i guess eight or seven or eight cameras on every tesla and every one of them is running a separate neural network and that's really the point at which it's holding up so obviously this is this is a, a a big, this is what's possible now that wasn't possible before. And you're analyzing that in a master's degree? Yes. Okay. So that's part of it. Tell me about, tell me, since you mentioned the quantity of data and before we got on the podcast, we kind of had a brief, I had a brief question for you about the term big data, because obviously it's being used a lot. It's bandied around a lot. So can you distinguish that? Is that big data? Or is there something distinct from big data? How is what, what what is what is in your head big data, and how does it differ from this larger quantity of data that is available now that allows programs like this and and work like this to be done? So, big data is one of those things that it doesn't have. There's not a robust definition around it, but something like neural networks actually aren't big data, even though the volume of data that you're using is huge, mm -hmm. you're still able to process it. So one of the sort of rule of thumb colloquial definitions of big data is if you are running a, a process, so say you're you're using a neural network or let's take it back smaller. If, if we think about somebody is in Excel, right? And say they're they're using Excel for some sort of data analysis and right there's a there's a limit to the number of rows you can put in excel it, it's a big limit mm -hmm. it's like a million or something but there is a limit mm -hmm. so you get to a point where you can no longer use your current tools because of the volume of data then you've entered big data territory okay so big data is just a moving target of largeness it's that moving target of largeness and it and it varies depending on what you're trying to do. Okay. So things like database systems can store a, a giant amount of information, but they have to store it in a very specific way. So another piece tied to big data is sort of this idea of 
getting away from structure and what do you do with all the messy stuff that's out there you know the the images right coming you've got your video processing on the tesla those are those are actually those video streams that are coming in from the six cameras each running their neural networks those are actually not particularly messy data right one camera is feeding one neural network it knows where the information is coming from it knows what the frame rate is it knows the the field of view of the camera right there's there's a lot of known parameters that are coming in so even though it's a huge volume you can plan for the amount that's coming in okay so tell me another definite clarify another definition for me is yeah. the data that you're working with or the processes that you're talking about and maybe that you were studying in your master's program would that fall into the category of artificial intelligence well that's another that's another one which is sort of a squishy, <laughs> squishy term. term um so maybe so maybe yeah the, the short answer is maybe <laughs> that's good um, enough that's good enough maybe i get the gist it's it's probably not big data it's maybe artificial intelligence but it's it's about large data sets analyzing them and in a, in a programming and statistical way i get that let's talk a little bit about your work you finished this master's degree you went off you got a job what's your title and maybe what kind of department are you in and what's your boss's title like how does this fit into tradition a traditional organization well Again, I'm I'm going to disappoint everyone who's looking for fancy Google-esque titles. I'm a business analyst in an HR department, so that is my title. Um, but I'm actually I'm a business analyst in a mini subsection of HR, which is data and decision support. My boss is the program manager of data and decision support. It's a mini department because it's just the two of us. So, so we are the department, um, <laughs> but it's it's within HR at Northwestern Medicine, which is the Northwestern hospital system, and they've got lots of hospitals and clinics and medical staff and various and lots things. of employees and lots of employees. And so there's two of you for the whole organization doing this, right? Doing this very specific task. And we're really focused on, because we're within HR, supporting more supporting HR functions. So we're not necessarily having to do this for the entire organization. We're having to do it for our, for our HR dep department, which then you know, affects the entire organization. Um, Good, so talk, so talk about that. Talk about what, is the, what, what, are, what are you doing and why is it in HR? Well, this is, this is one of the things, you know, thinking back to that, like, how do we define artificial intelligence? Like, I feel like artificial intelligence, right, is when you're asking the computer to make decisions for you. And what we're trying to do, you know, and it's in that title there of data and decision support is look at our, at the data that our organization has, and also data that exists out there in the wild that we can pull in that's related, and help make decisions use that to help support decisions mm -hmm. being made within hr about different policies things like workforce diversity right how do we increase workforce diversity well what does diversity mean f as a hospital does that mean our workforce reflects the communities where we're located does it mean it reflects our mm -hmm. patient populations are we talking about employees are we talking about diversity of, of patients? Are we talking about our board, our physicians, all these aspects? And then if we say we want more women in leadership roles, how, how do we do that? How do we look at 
our existing employee pool and say, can we evaluate can we create metrics to evaluate leadership qualities and start mentoring programs? Or do we need to hire more candidates? So then what does our candidate pool look like out there in recruitment? And sort of how do we bring those employees into the organization looking at our recruiting? So there's lots of opportunities there and lots of data mm -hmm. that we already have that we can sort of dig into and look at. So the thread that ties all those options or all those possibilities together in what you're doing, and maybe that gives you the opportunity to let the data lead, is exactly that, is saying that we're going to take this large set of data we have and extract truths from it that perhaps were unknowable or unnoticed when we relied on anecdotes and perceptions and relationships. Is that accurate? Yes, I, I would say so. It's. I forgot you went to DePaul. I guess I knew that. I got my first mass, I got a, my first administrative licensure um, from DePaul and I took a class there called data-driven decision-making. And it was for people who are going to be school leaders and run school districts and, and principals and such. And the ostensible focus of it was exactly what you know what what you're saying, which is that the the idea was that in schools you would take the data and you would look at data and figure out truths from it, and then have conversations about it and have that drive kind of what you do next. And what I discovered back then was that the types of things that people were looking at for data were incredibly small potatoes. And I say small potatoes because they were the, the I remember one of the earliest projects in the class was ha the professor asked us to, to go to our home school districts, find a data set about math test scores, for example, or trends in math test scores over a few years, and extract some truths from it. Uh, and, and we had no tools to do it. There was no analysis to it. It was, it was, it was purely based on conversation and at most, you know, uh, literally eyeballing four or five years of, of test score trend, something simple like that. And the, what I found fascinating was first that it was such a it was such a a, a media a tiny minuscule data set when you're talking about you know these huge terabytes of data that what this what we were looking at was like four data points like you know four cells on an spreadsheet and and the second thing that I found so compelling about it or weird about it at the time was that even for that what most people most of my classmates got caught up in was defending things they were doing despite the data and not uh, addressing the data at all. So we, that's the second one to me is politics. And I think that's an interesting thing that we can get into. And I want to talk about you know how, how, how the politics are affected in the workplace for you. But I guess the first one is what I'm more interested in, which is how do you begin to communicate to people? Or maybe how does your boss do it if you're actually doing the work and your boss is talking about how do you begin to communicate to people the, the import of the findings you have? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, part of it really is sort of institutional culture. There has mm -hmm. to be that cultural idea of, of willingness to look at things. Mm -hmm. You know, whether that's imbued throughout everybody and that sort of a grassroots sense of things or whether the president of the organization says we're going to start changing things and you know 
it's coming, right. so get on board or get out of the way. You know, one way or another, you sort of have to have that willingness to to look at things and and to change things. The willingness to accept things are going to change and to not have to spend energy sort of defending what you were doing for. I think the piece in terms of our approach is to try and to go into it almost with a, a problem-solving mindset, which is really listening to the clients, which is our fellow employees who we're doing this analysis for, and say, you know, how what what are you struggling with? What are your challenges? How can we use the data that we have as a resource to help you solve these problems? Because you know we can find all sorts of fascinating things going on in the data, and and we do come across things where we go, this is great. I don't know that it's actually useful, or I don't know they're ready to hear it yet. <laughs> so there are, you know, there is a divide between what, as data scientists, we find particularly interesting, and what's actually useful to people within the organization. And so, what we're presenting really has to be has to have that idea of usefulness and being user friendly and interpretable, right? I think that's one of the one of the big barriers to using data analysis is, is if you come back with sort of this this black box, right? You go, oh, you, well, the computer says, here is your answer. People go, well, that's right. not, that's not my experience, or I don't agree with that. Then they're not seeing sort of the rationalization behind it. So, but if you can say, okay, you know, the model is telling us that if we think about education, you know, it's seen that this cluster of students maybe has poor test scores than this cluster of students. And as teacher administrator, they can sort of look at that and go, here's some of those characteristics of those students. And they can sort of look at that and go, okay, yeah, this, right, this makes sense. This unites with my experience. I can sort of get on board with with some of those self-evident truths. So in some ways you need to, as, as a data science person, give people show people some of the obvious answers using the data so that they get the sense of, oh, the data can find the obvious answers. So when it gives me a non-obvious answer, I'm more likely to trust that. Whereas, you know, if, if you can't get the right answer on two plus two, then why would I trust you when you're telling me how to calculate jet trajectories, right? Actually, maybe the first thing I want to know is if you had to break down, like in a percentage way, just in general, off the top of your head, what percentage of the things you're discovering from the data are the result of hypotheses that are coming at you from either others or yourselves versus discoveries that are just coming just from starting with the data, kind of letting an analysis of data run without necessarily a clear hypothesis and just finding out truths? How would you say that breaks down? Is it majority of what you're seeing as you're doing this, is the majority of what you're seeing kind of, are, are they are they truths you're pursuing or, or information you're pursuing, or is it more just truths that are emerging? I mean, clearly it's going to be some of both. I think right. in data science for business, which is sort of the side that I'm on, you know, we do generally start with a question or at least sort of an area that we're looking at. And then one of the first things that as a, as a data scientist, one of the first things you do is actually 
start exploring the data and, you know, put on some exploratory statistics and do some graphs and charts and, you know, break things up in different ways just to try and get a sense of what the data content is, sort of what the volumes you're looking at. For example, I'm doing a project right now trying to change our, our job code reorganization. We've got way more job codes than we need for the volume of employees. And so just looking at this in different ways, one of the things I went was, okay, well, how many, what's the average number of people that we have in each job code? And mm -hmm. it turns out in about half of our job codes, there's one, or about a third of them, there's one person in them. So we've got a lot of exceptions in there. And so that that then presents, right? So we started with this idea of, okay, we, we know there's a, we have more job codes than we would like. How is that developing? And then from the data, we say, okay, we've got we've got a lot of exceptions. So that's an area to look at. Can we consolidate those down, right? Those are ripe for consolidation. Another way to slice it was to look at in the last year, how often was there someone in that job code? And so there's about a hundred where there was only somebody in it for about three months, which means these might be, you know, for some sort of tracking procedural purposes, we need these short-term job codes where you sort of have to plunk somebody in there. You know, it's a termination with benefits. So you sort of have to plunk them in there for three months until their benefits run out and then COBRA expires or, or whatever the situation is. I'm, I don't mm -hmm. know the, the specific details, but, you know, that's a, a, a for, for example. So that could be a category where that's only 100. We could actually just look at those manually, right? We don't have to build some elaborate algorithm. We could look at those manually and say, are there opportunities to consolidate these? Or is this a separate category? Can we use something else to address the problem that these job codes are solving? which is some some sort of short-term status change. So I understand the idea of organizational efficiencies and I guess you're you're raising and uh, being in an H, being in HR I know that a lot of people who work in HR kind of think of their roles as as universalist and good for organizations and people who aren't in HR often think of HR as the kind of, you know, the the the, the authority and the the dictator who comes down beating beating upon people doing their regular jobs. The example you gave is one of kind of simplifying the data, right? And taking job codes and distilling them down to maybe fewer job codes based on some type of like characteristics. Are there are there times that you've worked with the data where you go the other direction, where you're actually creating a more rich diversity of of data or is it always is it always that the go is the goal always to kind of simplify and clarify or is it in some cases is the goal to complexify i think it it definitely can be the case to complexify because with complexity comes durability comes robustness there's lots of there's lots of positive things to complexity i i think one of the one of the issues that often occurs in data science is people think, right, more data is better. More factors are better. You know, let's just throw everything in there and, mm -hmm. you know, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And that's mm -hmm. not necessarily the best option because one of the, the issues that tends to happen there is the more things you you put in, the harder it is to figure out what factors are important. 
So let's talk about test score performance. If you're looking at mm-hmm. at test score performance, you could look at the the age of the student relative to their peers, how well they do on you know, and other standardized measures, maybe you do some personality assessments, look at what instructor they have, what school they're in. And then you look at, um, you know, socioeconomic, right? What's their home situation like? And what what are their socioeconomic factors? And, you know, do they have both, do they have two parents in the household? Um, how many siblings do they have? You know, where do they go to grade mm-hmm. school? So you, you can start what's the socioeconomic of their community? You you can start sort of building out all of these different factors, right? Racial and gender, and and you sort of can build this huge, you know, socioeconomic model, Mm -hmm. which which may be highly accurate at predicting test scores on a particular thing. Sure. So the data in some I get the idea that in some cases that that more data is not necessarily good, but the 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 premise at some level is, and I assume this is what you did in your master's program too, is you're you were I mean I assume you're just given data sets and said here here is some data go extract truth. Somewhat. Usually it was, yeah. We usually actually it was go find a data set and then extract some truth from it. But yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so that distinction is, it seems like that distinction is important. The idea of letting data decide, it seems to me, is is somehow is tied to, I don't know, is somehow tied to letting go of kind of what, or, or, or finding truth, for lack of a better word. Um, is that the word you guys use, truth? Maybe I should start with that because I keep using the word truth. Finding knowledge. Knowledge, thank you. Knowledge, okay. So is finding knowledge in a data set a part and parcel of of letting data decide is that is that the core of it or is is there is there a significant enough correlation to other things of known things that choosing what you want to extract from the data or choosing the data set you want is more important in most of what you're doing i think it really varies but i i think what yeah i i what you're getting at you know the idea of of being open to being surprised by what comes out of the data, mm-hmm. I think that's important because the flip side of, of this, you know, complexity is, yeah, if you, if you only look for, you're going to find what you're looking for. So if you're, if you're only looking for how does, how does gender affect test scores, then that's, you're probably going to find information about how gender affects test scores. And you're not going to find maybe something like the fact that the the performance of the teacher has a much higher impact. I'm I don't know that these are actual correlations, so let me just preface that, but I'm I'm sort sure, of putting them sure, out sure, there sure. As, as for instances. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so there But may that's be, part of what you do is is, 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 hypothesizing, is hypothesizing what the potential categories right. are. I think you have to be open to be surprised by the data. I think that's why an exploration phase is so vital even if you think you know what you're looking for. If we go back to my my job code thing, right? You probably could have hypothesized. You went, okay, well, if we've got lots, you know, more job codes than we probably should, it it means that we've got relatively few people in in individual job codes, right? You could have sort of said, well, that's a given. We don't need to look at that. Mm-hmm. But there's still information to be found there, and and if I hadn't been mm-hmm. looking at sure. sort of that volume, I might not have thought, oh well. Now let me look at the frequency. You know, let me think of other ways to measure this 
and then found this this subset, which is of this quite reasonable size, right? It's almost, we call it in business, right? It's the, the low-hanging fruit, the thing where you can go, this is a manageable chunk that we could just solve, like sit down in a room for an hour or two with the people who sure. administer this and be like, okay, do we need this one? No. Do we need, okay, let's manually go through that rather than building some sort of elaborate, elaborate model, you know, use that as the mm-hmm. exception mm-hmm. case and, and sort of check that off the list and not have mm-hmm. to deal with it. Well, so let me ask you Let me ask you one more question about your current work, and then I want to kind of move into the realm of talking about kind of ideas and maybe what's next and do a little do a little just speculating about the future. But give, yeah. give me in your current work or in your studies, give me your biggest aha moments. What was the thing that you found most surprising in one of your explorations into data? Oh, man. Biggest aha moment. Something you enjoyed, something that was like, this is cool. <laughs> a this is cool moment or this is interesting or this was surprising or I didn't see this coming or um, I didn't expect this. You're And by the way, I'll throw this out there. You're kind of a pattern person already. I mean, um, that's true. you, you have, you have a, you have a, you have a very strong ability to pick up on patterns. That's kind of, that's a little bit kind of in your nature just as a person. And you seem to, to notice patterns in kind of in things. Do you, is this, is a lot of this work kind of that? Is it identifying patterns in data? Is that what's happening here? Or is there something bigger happening? I think it's a both and. I, I think, yeah, patterns are are important. Again, I, I, can't, I can't speak to what it's like to not be a pattern person doing data analysis because I've never <laughs> right. not been a pattern person. So yeah, you have sort of, right, right it's like, what is it like to be a woman in data science? Like, I, I don't know. I've never been a man in data science, so it's hard for me to give a comparative. Right. But so I, I think patterns are definitely a part of it. And I think that's where a lot of the tools that are available that can do sort of these these visual things, different visualizations. I talk about visualizations a lot because mm-hmm. I'm a very visual person, and I think it's an incredibly powerful tool. Human beings are very visual. We're really good at visual pattern recognition. I think that's that's a part of it. And then it's going beyond that. It's not just about, let me find something cool. It's, okay, then what, what can I actually do with this? What does that actually mean? And is it actionable? Um, again, going back to sort of data science, practical applications of data science, where if we talk about that school setting. If we find out that the kids who have two parents in the household do better than kids who have a single parent in the household. That's useful information, but it's not necessarily actionable, right? We can't then start a dating service for all of our single parents and say, this will solve your child's education problems. Mm-hmm. So it, it's going beyond the pattern because the pattern may be very clear, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can do anything useful with it. So let me t- ask you a little bit about like taking that idea and moving it mo- moving it forward, or maybe thinking about the future a little bit. Yeah. The data that I've seen, or the data set, the data analysis and conversations that most schools are doing. Well, I, I actually maybe I should even start with something earlier, which is, it seems pretty clear to me that the this this type of skill, being able to analyze data in this way and take a data set and kind of look at look for knowledge, extract knowledge from it, applies to pretty much any organization that has data. So schools have huge amounts of data and I know that they are on the, they are um, in some ways, uh, there are a lot of probably more 
scary, just like in healthcare, there are very scary or intense privacy issues that revolve around data. But in terms of extracting knowledge at some larger, um, in some larger way from a data set in, in education, is there, there's a lot, of, a lot of good to be done. So that w- within that world of, of, of education, most of the conversations that I've heard around data analysis fall into one of two camps. One is along the lines of what you mentioned as being the hypothesis theory, where people come in and get ideas about what they're looking for, a hypothesis, and then they kind of go out and find it. And I feel like that is increasingly suspect in the eyes of true data scientists, because it seems like there's some bias issues, or even as you mentioned earlier, that you know, you're going to find what you're looking for type stuff. But the, so the second camp is this idea that there is a lot of untapped data that's just not being considered right now. The analogy that I used, and, and this is, I'd love to hear, this is what I want to hear you talk about is I, I was at a, I was at a school law privacy conference a few years ago. There was a session that was sponsored by Microsoft. And it was at the time when Microsoft was losing a lot of school districts, um, was losing a lot of school districts from using their email. And everybody was shifting over to Google education because it was every student got Gmail for free, a student account based on the school. And, you know, Google was basically offering a whole bunch of things for free to schools. And it was clear at the time, although it wasn't a very big deal, that the privacy issues surrounding the data were, 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 were significant. So this conference I was at, Microsoft's having this session where they kind of laid bare the idea that, look, the data that Google is collecting, they are using, they're aggregating it, they're extracting truths, and they're going to, you know, they're going to use this data to, for, well, Microsoft, of course, said it was for potentially, you know, capitalist purposes. And Google certainly would say it was, no, it's, you know, to improve education in the long run, we're going to have these large data sets. But the assumption underlying that, the assumption underlying that there's value in that data, like the data of Billy in 10th grade sending emails to friends about his paper on Catcher in the Rye or sending email to his friends about what he's going to do for prom on Saturday night, that there's value in that data. And I guess, I, want, I mean, that seems to me to be like one of these areas that is so, like a massive data set, right? This idea of email or the amount of data we create, there, we, we create in, in writing and, and writing papers and submitting pa- uh, maybe video and, and audio. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, where do you, like, where, how, how would, for example, in your work or in your analysis, how would something like a data set that's not really, doesn't feel like a spreadsheet at all, but looks just like a lot of words or a lot of information, how does, how does that get used as in, in data analysis and what value is there in that today and in the future? Yeah. Well, I think there's the thing about like with the, with what Google's collecting, like there is a lot of value in that, but it it may not be something that applies back to its originating source necessarily. So a lot of the data that's being, you know, if you talk about right, all the all the papers that students write for their their English classes, yes, that, that's a lot of data and, and maybe it can tell us something about the students and we could look at it um, education. But if you were looking at that, you know, as as a from a Google esque mindset, or just you know the value of, of the data in and of itself, one of the um, one of the big challenges we have in in data and in teaching 
machines and algorithms how to how to identify things is labeling data because we this happens a lot in image we look at a picture of a bird and we know it's a bird well how does a computer know that it's a picture of a bird or we can briefly read the summary of, of a paper and go you know we can scan a paper and go oh this is a paper about Henry VIII or about Gettysburg or about mathematicians whatever it is and, and we're sort of good at being able to scan that and sort of assign some topics to it and computers are surprisingly bad at some of those tasks so just the intrinsic value right if you have you know an entire year of an entire you know career of an english teacher who assigns their students to write a paper about you know analyzing romeo and juliet every spring mm-hmm. you know now you've got 20 you know 20 years worth of hundreds or possibly thousands of students where you've got papers data entities which are are labeled right you know what they're about they're about romeo and juliet Mm -hmm. so suddenly you have this vast repository of documents which are already labeled for you you know what they're about so that's a very sort of the intrinsic value of that in and of itself is to have that that labeling and then you can you could take all that and feed it into a computer program and teach the computer program how to recognize papers about Romeo and Juliet. Talk about a little bit about that about how, how and why computers are bad at categories or categorization. What's coming to mind for me is the are the old ideas of deductive and inductive reasoning, and somehow if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck you can figure out it's a duck. But it sounds like it sounds like it's it's something else. Is the thing that's challenging for computers coming up with <laughs> it's, it's weird I'm talking about computer like a person. It's uh, is it is the is it what's challenging for a computer coming up with that name duck or is what's challenging coming up with the characteristics or something totally different? So what does a duck look like? Give, give me some describe some characteristics of a duck. Feathers, quacks, moves its feet underwater, webbed feet. Okay. Okay. So, right, beak, feathers, webbed feet, water. Right. So one thing to remember about computers, right, is they have they have no 3D experience of the world, right? They don't get to mm-hmm. pick things up and touch them. It's all the information that's coming in is... It, it's essentially, it's it's visual, and then that's translated visual. into little bits and bytes. Um, you mm-hmm. know, visual or auditory, but then it, it, it's all translated into sort of bits and bytes, single pieces. So mm-hmm. if you think about a picture of a duck, how do you identify a feather in a picture without having picked one up and felt it and, you know, having this, this sense? So how do you how do you identify something as, as a feather and then... How do you then identify an animal that's covered in feathers as opposed to a person? How do you how do you differentiate a duck from Big Bird on Sesame Street? Well, if you look at your descriptors, right? Feathers, beak, webbed feet. Big Bird has those things. Does big I feel like Big Bird has right. webbed feet. Maybe he doesn't. Um, <laughs> right, right. You know, but a if lot of those should. same characteristics, yeah. right? Or right. like a, a seagull. A seagull has all those things. But if you if you asked, you know, you could ask a five year old, is this a seagull or is it a duck? And and they're gonna know the difference because they have all these extra channels of information 
So is that just what it is? Is it just the quantity of information or is it something processing about the information that's different? It It's some of both. I mean, that's one of the reasons why neural networks are a really powerful tool because, I mean, like like a brain, it's the idea that it's, you're trying to, you're not working based off explicit ideas or explicit rules, right? So it's not just, it's some of that inductive piece. It's not just if it has webbed feet, then it's a duck. It's having to be able to to apply those ideas to different things. And volume of information is a piece of things. Because if you think about it, I said, okay, a five-year-old child can identify a seagull from a, from a duck. That child, their neural network within their brain has had five years of continuous, constant, full stream, immersive input. Mm-hmm. We like, we don't, we would never, we wouldn't feed a computer information, you know, for five years to be able to identify. And, and you know, kids obviously learn a, a lot more tasks than just that. But if you think about the volume of information that our brains take in and that we experience every moment, we don't just have the visual and the auditory channel, right? We're touching things and we're tasting things right. and we're smelling things. And right. there's all this stuff going well, it on. It sounds like this is... Yeah, so it sounds like this is where big data does come into the picture in pretty much any 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 definition of the word because it seems like at some point, whether it's classifying, creating and identifying job categories or identifying a duck or, or extracting knowledge from a, a whole boatload of Romeo and Juliet papers, it seems like if you have a, it seems like the core activities at the core activity that allows humans to do that so well, the human brain, which is, is, it sounds like is what we're comparing the, the, the computer to now, the core activity that the human brain does is something that happens from an enormous amount of data and computing power over a long period of time. And that brings in the idea that something like as close as Siri or Google Assistant or Alexa are close to artificial intelligence today, that those those sources of just plain old comprehending things that are being said and seen or heard today can be can be converted to knowledge. Those players or that the people who have access or the organizations that have access to that kind of data are are going to get there first. In, in for any one of those tasks, regardless of what the what the venue is for it or the organization or the the function, does that sound does that sound like a right good connection? Yeah, I think I think that's accurate. I do have you know I don't want to go too far off into my rant about the issue with artificial intelligence, but I'll, I'll give you the the short version, which is right. Many of the things that we are asking computers to do are things that people are really good at and computers are really bad at. And so it it seems I have an issue with with the whole right we're trying to teach computers how to how to speak English. Well, mm-hmm. why? I mean, we can speak English. Computers are really bad at speaking English. It doesn't make or any natural language, um any you know, any human language. Those those languages they're messy. They don't have follow structure. It's going to be really hard for a computer to do that. And yet it's it's comparatively very easy for us. And 
for some people, it's very easy to speak multiple languages. But if you, if I, right, if I asked my computer, again, going back to my, you know, my job code example, if I want to know how many people are in each of these job codes, this is condensed from 50,000 records of employees and 7,000 different job codes. It, like, it would take me like a year to be able to count that down by hand. And the computer does it in, you know, 12 seconds. So there are things computers are really good at, and we, we should utilize the things the computers are really good at. The piece that people are good at, we should let people be good at that piece. So that's my mini rant. Yeah, I hear you. I hear the rant. The, and that applies to where computers are today. What, what do you make of the people who would say, well, the Google people perhaps or the other natural language big data people who are saying they're putting together you know, some kind of longer system about language or understanding of language, who would say that they're targeting something in the future, which is a point at which these i guess this i guess this is getting into the idea of general artificial intelligence as opposed to spe specific or specialized artificial intelligence but i i'm i'm wondering if there i i guess i'm what i'm trying to s s tease out from the different examples we're giving and the different approaches we're looking at is is it necessary to be able to speak english for example and look at look out a window and see the rooftop of a building and a tree and a leaf and a bird and a fly in order to be able for in order for a computer to be able to in the future in order for a computer to be able to do some other tasks or extract some other knowledge that we don't yet have that will really radically change the game about what we can do as human beings yes i'm i'm with you like i I think that's ex exactly the right argument, and that's something that I really unite with. Where I, yeah, we're trying to teach the computers the things that we do. I mean, that's the whole thing. They're trying to develop these language programs and like teach, you know, create the computers in our own image when we could be using the strength of computers, mm -hmm. yeah, to to mm -hmm. to do the things that were right to find the insights we wouldn't find because we don't think that way. So instead of trying to teach the computers to think the way we do, maybe we should be spending more time figuring out how do the computers learn, right? It's it's the same thing in education. Nice. You know, the best teachers don't sure. the best teachers don't teach the way they want to teach. They teach the way their students learn. Well, so at some fundamental level, it sounds like you're making, and I guess this is what I guess this is kind of uh, one of my last big questions, which is, you know, if, if companies like Uber and other disruptors of tech, if tech disruptors say that big old institutions like hospitals, schools, transportation organizations, you know, law firms or legal organizations, legal systems and other areas can, can never adapt or uh, change to really let data decide in providing new knowledge. Where do you stand on that? Are you optimistic that the existing institutions will be able to change, adapt, and integrate the knowledge coming from new data sets? Or are you pessimistic that these are all these old established organizations are going to have to go the way of, you know, the cab company in New York or, um, or, you know, or whatever other, whatever order um, organizations been disrupted the last, the last couple of years. 
I think they have to. I mean, I think about data now and like the idea of using data in business and in industries and like data literacy, the same way that we think about computer literacy in the 80s and 90s, right? Where computers didn't replace the library, but the institutions that didn't didn't adopt them faded away to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, you know, you have to, the functions that many of these institutions perform are necessary in society, right? We we will need we will always need education for our children. Now, will the form of that look very different in a in a data-driven education? It it might. You know, I don't know. I can't predict the future, but it might look different. There might need to be systematic changes to sort of the very way that we approach education, the way that we approach healthcare. Mm -hmm. And will the existing can the existing institutions make those transitions? I, I don't know. It depends on their, their sort of culture and the philosophy and whether they, they make a commitment to do it or not. Mm -hmm. But those functions will always be necessary. And so I think, mm -hmm. I think you'll see a mix of both. I think you will see institutions, hospitals, schools that will sort of embrace the change, some, some more willingly than others, but will, will sort of change and, and move into this new data, the data age, beyond, beyond the computer age, mm -hmm. into the data age. Mm -hmm. But I, I think you will, you will also see some individuals and some institutions that just refuse to change and don't make it. Mm -hmm. But I think like mm -hmm. anything, mm -hmm. you know, the generation that's growing up now is, is growing up in this environment, the environment of, of data. So the, the under 10 set now, by the time they get to be VR, age, right? It's going to be un inconceivable to them that a business doesn't have a chief data officer and that they're not looking at data because that will be the mindset that they've grown up in. So I think that yeah, will, I mean, I always th I, that'll yeah. always happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the same thing about kids that they're going to grow up and in the kids in who are, you know, five years old now when they're 18 are, are going to take a test or going to be assessed on something in a class, and it's going to be inconceivable to them that they that that the test wouldn't adapt to their responses. And you know, ask for at a, at, a, at the most rudimentary level, ask a more challenging question when they get the answer right, <laughs> and ask a simpler question, or kind of hone in on what they need to work on when they when they get the question wrong. And it seems like those are at the easiest level for assessments is something easy. But it seems like that's going to be true across the board. That makes total sense to me. But since you raised the idea of the next generation, let me ask you as a as a last question. Let me ask you about the career that you've made, you've switched to. So, you know, you, you mentioned that part of your work and staffing in HR before kind of prompted you to go into, to get the, to get your degree in data and data science and now, and, and, and lead you down this path. And, and I think it's pre pretty clear that organizations are just going to be hiring more people like this. Certainly universities are offering more degrees like this. It's getting more popular. What, what advice would you give to a, a young person, a, maybe a person who's finishing high school or a person who is an undergraduate student or even somebody who maybe is a, an older person who's looking at making a career shift in this direction, what advice would you give them about what's best to do in order to go down this path of kind of making themselves both more educated on the issue and maybe more marketable? I think one thing that I would I would say, which is, is sort of unrelated to the tools altogether, and this is especially, you know, especially to somebody who's sort of advanced in their career and is looking to change into this, is that your you know, your 
existing knowledge, your institutional knowledge of business, that will serve you in data. You don't have to, you know, sort of throw out everything that you knew before. And even, you know, to the, the high schooler, right? Things like problem solving, you will need that. And so critical thinking, communication, all of those sort of standard, what I think of as sort of standard business needs, standard business skills are still just as important and are actually something that a lot of people who go into data science may not necessarily have. So being able to, to tell a story, tell the story of the data, tell the stor a story with the data is, is going to be key. So, you know, don't, mm -hmm. don't neglect your English homework because you go, I'm going to be a data scientist. I don't need to speak to people because that is entirely <laughs> not the case. Makes sense. The, the other piece I would say with specific skills is computer programming. Do not be afraid of computer programming and, and go, there are so many fantastic free resources online. Many of them are geared at kids, but if, if you're a more seasoned worker, go in and like do the kid stuff because it's it's designed well and it's fun. There's this role playing game that basically teaches you how to how to code by like controlling a character on the screen. If that's not your thing, there there's so many other opportunities. But even you know just having a little bit of of knowledge about about computer programming allows you to sort of unlock many of these functions. I started this talking about Excel at the beginning. There's this whole programming language behind Excel, Visual Basic, and just having a little bit of courage to dive into that and start exploring, you can suddenly open up and do really high level things. Impress your boss and your friends and neighbors and, and, and do cool stuff. <laughs> so yeah, don't be afraid of computer programming. And I will especially say this to various quote unquote minority populations. So women who are actually not the minority and people who are of various gender and racial identities who don't necessarily get connected with the stereotype of data science is do not be afraid of going into this area, we need That's we great. need diverse viewpoints, just as we do in any other industry. The way that you approach a problem, the way that you choose to look at things from your brain using the tool of data science is going to be informed by your experience. So we need that diversity of experience. So bring that to an even more practical level. So you've, re I mean, you, you're, you know, before you got into this gig and have been called already a data guru at, at Northwestern, what is, what is your, uh, what, what did you see being out on the job market? Like, what are the credentials people are looking for in these kind of jobs, and how are they finding them? Are people going to universities to re to recruit? Are they, are they just posting online? Are, rec are recruitment agencies and, and search firms kind of getting involved in this at this point? Are they looking for certain specific credentials are they looking for like master's degrees or are having just um, you know being able to point to a bunch of micro credentials on your LinkedIn profile sufficient like what do you what did you see in terms of just the actual state of the market today which I'm sure will change very quickly but where is it right yeah, now I'll, I'll go with e all of the above I, sure there's there there is a lot more focus on there's a lot more focus on skills over degrees and I think you're going to continue to see that trend especially mm -hmm. within this area of the market, being able to have all those micro courses you've taken or those sequences, having some sort of project 
or several projects that you've worked on that have directly applied specific data science techniques. And these do not need to be advanced techniques, but having sort of worked on a robust enough project, if you're in a sort of formal education setting, take advantage of projects or research opportunities. If you're not, if you're in a work setting, you know, looking at what projects are there within your work that you can be able to apply some of the data science to. Mm -hmm. There's also Kaggle competitions, which are, uh, or other sort of data science hackathons. Just having projects that you can present on your resume and be able to talk about and show, you know, demonstrate the skills. There are a mm -hmm. lot of different programming languages in, and I think they're going to vary a little bit by industry, but some of the big ones are actually R, it's just the letter R, Python, SAS, and SPSS less so. There are still some more established organization out there using those. Mm -hmm. But the important thing with, with a programming language is it's, it's less about knowing a specific language mm -hmm. and than it is about being able to know a language and because that will help you pick up other languages. I mean, the same thing with spoken language, right? Once you know French, then Spanish and the rest of the Romance languages are, you can sort of figure your way through them and programming is gonna be very similar. Once you know one of those top languages, at least enough to get by, that sort of opens you up to the rest of, of them because you know what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, so if people want to get a hold of you, because you're, you're such a rich a wealth of a wealth of information, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, where do you want to send people? Oh man, I, I didn't know people were going to have to talk to me. I, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Typically, people are going to Twitter feeds and LinkedIn profiles or something like that, as opposed to uh, as opposed to email or phone numbers. Well, thank you. Um, I I do have a LinkedIn profile, so it's Eva Hare H A R E on LinkedIn. And I think it says something in my title about data science. So yeah, come come find me there. And I'm happy to connect with people. Great. This was super fun. Thanks for doing this, Eva. You're welcome. You are not only brilliant at an area of, of study that I just find utterly, utterly fascinating that it, I feel is the vanguard of what's going on, but you are so good at explaining it in layman's terms that I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate getting on here. And I, I know we, we didn't talk too much about how this relates to education specifically. So maybe there's a future podcast somewhere down the line where we can get into some some more of the details as the questions develop. I love it. I think it's great. There's a there. There's no question that of the schools that I've worked in in the U.S., in California, Texas, Illinois, and then in France, in the Netherlands, and in uh, and now in China, there is in incredible diversity in education, which maybe is no big surprise, right? It's an incredibly large, whether you want to call it an industry or not, it's an incredibly large sector of the of the of the economy in the world, and the range of challenges and priorities and abilities is so vast that I was reticent to scratch the surface. And really, I thought, I think that what you talked about is so, is so much more interesting for where we are in, 
in any organization, whether it's a school or anybody anywhere else. So I think this was incredibly valuable. Well, I'm glad I could uh, accommodate you. And we'll do, and we'll definitely do it again. I will. I'm sure there'll be a trigger for some massive education-related big data question, and we can do a we can do a podcast about that. So I'm super excited. So thanks again. This is great. I want to thank my guests. Thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank uh, Mary Heinz for doing the editing, Ted Enley for doing the music that starts and ends the podcast, and I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any ideas for the podcast, I am just getting going and would love to hear feedback from you. If you would like to reach out to me, I'm easily available on Twitter, on the website, secondrail.com. And, and it's, you can certainly email me as well at johnheinz at gmail.com. I hope you will join me again in a fortnight for more conversation about education and where it's going. 